Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about when selecting an investment property, why focusing on rental income could cost you a million dollars in today's dollars, uh, just using a, a case study that I'll take you through in a moment. Uh, so of course, in re- regards to investment return, uh, when you invest in residential property, your investment return will be made up of both uh, a rental income, of course, uh, and capital growth, hopefully. And I've spoken about uh, the importance of focusing on maximising capital growth and benefiting from uh, compounding returns uh, many times on this uh, podcast. However, often investors are tempted to focus on income, particularly when selecting a investment property asset, as of course they seek to you know, minimise the holding costs associated with uh, investing in property. And my thesis is this is a mistake and can lead to uh, quite a substantial opportunity cost. As I said, the case study that I worked through, it's a million dollars in today's dollars. Now, I think the reason that people incorrectly focus on income uh, could be due to a couple of things. Uh, Maybe they don't fully understand the consequences of that focus. Uh, So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, Maybe they need to really adjust their target investment property attributes so that is that they've got uh, uh, the wrong brief to either their buyer's agent or if they're doing their own search or maybe it's symptomatic of uh, having trying to push the budget too high uh, and as a result then they are forced to think about you know cash flow and rental income and so forth. So as I've spoken about before the value of a property, you know, its overall value, obviously consists of two attributes, the underlying land component of the property and then obviously any improvements that sit on that land. So, of course, the house or dwelling or apartment or whatever it might be. Now, we know that generally land appreciates where buildings depreciate over time due to wear and tear and they need maintenance and so forth. And I've spoken about that before on this podcast as well. Now, I have um, drafted a table that looks at or or considers if you are targeting a capital growth rate of, say, 7 to 8% over the long term, and I think that's a reasonable sort of target or expectation to have, then what the table does is work out what does the underlying land value need to be in terms of its capital growth rate uh, for you to achieve that overall return, capital growth return of 7 to 8%. And so if you've got uh, 20% building value, so it's mostly land, you know, you only need the land value to appreciate by between 82 and 9.4%. Whereas if uh, 70% of your overall value is in the building, then really the underlying land value needs to increase by 155 to 17%, which is substantial and I think completely unrealistic for any land to appreciate at that rate uh, over a very long period of time. So therefore, just from that basic mathematics, uh, in order to select a property that has the highest probability of achieving a 7 to 8% capital growth rate over the long run, then the more you invest or the more you spend on land value and therefore the less you spend on building value, the more likely uh, that is uh, to occur. Now, when we have a look at long-term investment performance or investment returns, uh, whether it's in Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, 
whatever, however you look at it, over long periods of time, the total return really exceeds 10%. You know, it might be a sort of circa around that number, but you're probably not going to get much more than 10% over very long periods of time. Uh, but the makeup of that 10% changes or, or is different. So if you look at Perth, for example, typically a higher rental yield over a long period of time, lower growth rate. Uh, if you look at Sydney, it's the reverse. You tend to have a lower rental yield uh, and a higher growth rate. The total return on both in both those capital cities, however, is materially close to 10%. Now, it makes sense that a property that generates a higher rental yield is likely then to generate a lower capital growth rate because obviously the rental yield is really driven by the quality and size of the accommodation, the actual dwelling. Uh, and so the more that you spend on the dwelling or the better that is, the lower the value of the land uh, and therefore uh, the lower the capital growth rate. Now, of course, an investor can manipulate uh, the components of their return by targeting you know, different properties. So if they want you know, high income, low growth, uh, they can go and buy a, a brand new property or something that's very heavy in, land, in uh, building value. Uh, if they want high growth but low income, you know, focus on very land heavy properties, for example. And so what I've done is I've charted the theoretical combination of, of these attributes, going starting at the absolute extreme where we've got a theoretically, because I don't think it's possible, but theoretically a gross rental income of 9% and therefore only a capital growth rate of 1%. Uh, and the other extreme being 1% gross rental yield and 9% capital growth. The, the total return being 10% in every example, but I've looked at, um, at various iterations of those combinations of returns. And so what I've done from a calculation perspective is I've assumed that if we've held the property for 30 years and then sold it, paid whatever capital gains tax we need to pay and then walk away with the cash in the bank. Then what I've done is added up how much, what were the holding costs over that 30-year period? So in the initial sort of 15, 20 years, there was a negative cash flow. In the last 10 years, there's a positive cash flow. Uh, and then discounted all those cash flows, including the sales value back in today's dollars. So really working out mathematically what is the value of that asset or what you know in terms of both income stream and capital growth over time. And so essentially what it tells us is that the higher the capital growth rate, the the greater the return. And it can be significant. So for example, instead of focusing on a four percent yield and therefore a six percent capital growth rate, you're better off to focus on a two percent yield and therefore an 8% growth rate, and the difference is almost a million dollars in today's dollars. So it's quite substantial, uh, and it does show that the cost of focusing on rental income comes at the cost of lower capital growth, and therefore substantially less wealth over time. Now you might say, that's great, Stuart, that's good analysis, but income is actually really important to me because I do want to defray some of the costs of holding on to an investment property, particularly, I guess, in a, a rising interest rate environment. Well, my response to that would be, that's fine. Make sure you refine your budget and um, spend as much money as you possibly can to buy the highest quality asset. And the highest quality asset is an asset that's predominantly land value in the best location that you can afford. And then once you've acquired that asset in time, whether you do it immediately or in a few years time or five, 10 years down the track, you can always make improvements to that property. 
And the benefit of that obviously is that you improve the dwelling, it's likely then to materially improve the rental income stream and obviously make your property more marketable, less vacancy, etc. But also any improvements that you make, you'll be able to depreciate. So you can claim a, de a depreciation tax deduction, which is going to reduce your taxes further and therefore e improve your cash flow again. So if you're going to spend money on building value, my view would be doing it after the fact, after you've purchased the property, rather than when you purchase the property. Some other alternatives in terms of sort of dealing with the cash flow impact of, of targeting high land value property. Um, uh, another op uh, option would be to, you know, just reduce your budget. So if you had a budget of say one and a half million and, you know, one and a half million, it was going to be tight in terms of targeting a high land value property, well, maybe pull your budget back to 1.2 or 1.1. You're better off actually spending, as I said, more on that land value and getting yourself a better quality property. As I said, you can always make those improvements after the fact. The second option may be to think about the way that you structure the cash flow. So, you know, for example, if you had to eat into some equity to fund some of the holding costs through the the period of time, particularly the first 10 years where holding costs tend to be, you know, the most significant, uh, well, maybe you can fund some of that cash flow from the equity in that property or in another property, for example. So, for example, if the property was costing you $30,000 in negative cash flow pre-tax, maybe 20 comes from cash flow and 10 comes from additional borrowings. The point is that you're actually better off to do that because the cash flow is immaterial in the long run compared to the compounding capital growth that that asset could deliver. Now, I'm not counselling people to borrow more than they can afford. I'm just really uh, inviting people to think about how they're structuring their cash flow so they can still achieve their aims. So whether that, you know, if they want to make, still make additional super contributions and those sorts of things, it's really about, you know, the mix of, of how you attack that cash flow. Now, finally, just a word of warning in respect to advice you may receive from buyer's agents. You see, I think buyer's agents are relatively conditioned to believing that for most investors, income is important. Uh, and that's partly probable. That's probably mostly driven just by their experiences. You know, uneducated investors coming to them and saying, look, I, you know, I want a high yield as well as high growth. Uh, and we all know that's... Uh, fundamentally just not possible uh, and quite often then uh, I find the buyer's agents will really have or give or add a lot of weight to the rental yield consideration. If I was um, doing that job, so if I was a buyer's agent, I would prefer to take a different approach which would be to kind of educate my clients about how important capital growth is and how in the long run that's going to generate a hell of a lot more wealth than a small increase in rental yield uh, and then refine my client's budget uh, and their investment brief uh, to ensure that I buy a property that fits both those things. So that, that is both affordable to my client uh, and that, but is still a good investment grade property with a strong land value component. So just be mindful about where you're taking advice from and the foundation of that advice. Unfortunately, there's a lot of advisors out there, you know, whether they're buyers, agents, uh, investors, uh, financial advisors, that really just don't understand this asset class well enough and really don't understand they, these fundamentals are really just rooted in basic maths and sound logic. Uh, and so it's really important that you 
you know, understand where that advice is coming from and really framing, you know, what is what are the attributes I'm after with respect to an investment property purchase is critical. Uh, and really, in this situation, or this case study proves uh, it's literally a million dollar decision. Now, before I leave you, just a gentle reminder, if you do enjoy the podcast, please share it amongst family, friends and colleagues if you think they're going to get some value from it and wherever you listen to your podcasts, if you could leave a rating uh, or review, that would be fantastic as it certainly helps the ranking. Thanks in advance. Until next week, bye for now.